Welcome to Ordinary Life, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church. And thank God Holly Hudley is back today. I missed you last week. Thank you. I missed being here. It was an entirely different experience. I used to do that every Sunday. Yeah. But it wasn't that. But I it's did. as it you would, say, you have. There's no, there's, yeah. I mean, you know, we have people here, but. They're not with us much. They like their phones better than us. <laughs> so I, I do want to say, uh, before we get into the meat of today, that um, it's not too late for you to sign up for the oh. talk that I'm doing tomorrow night at 6.30, Hope in a Time of Disaster and Distrust. I just realized I hadn't signed up. I just thought I was going to click in. What was I thinking? You have to that's, sign up for everything. That's timely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you go to the Ordinary Life website, I think you will find a wealth of materials. You can subscribe to the previews and summaries that we get. You can subscribe to the podcast that we do yeah. every week. Now we've done a bunch of those. We have, I think, up to 33 now. Starting all over. Should we start season two in 2021 and I don't know. Yeah, we're up to 33, which is hard to believe. I was thinking about how long ago we started this series of um, Buddha and Jesus. It was, you know, seven months ago. We're almost a year into this. Hard to believe. And yet here we are. What? I don't mean this as any slight to any adolescents who may be in the audience, but what adolescent thought of the phrase warp speed Right. Or the delivery of the virus. It's been more like snail speed. Yeah. We get our shots next week. That's this good. Week, this yeah, week. I'm sure yeah. that will come as some relief. Yeah. Um, well, yes. Frankly, you have to get two shots. And mm -hmm. frankly, we we don't know. Yeah, we don't know. We don't know. Yeah. Whatever. If you want to donate money, Holly's going to tell you how. <laughs> There are buttons all over our website, OrdinaryLife.org, um, that you can click on at the bottom and top of the pages that say Donate. And it takes you to a page um, where you fill out your information. And in the memo, you just put Ordinary Life. It's a page on the St. Paul's website, since we're a class of St. Paul's. But under the memo, just put Ordinary Life, and it'll go straight there. And um, as you guys, oh, I didn't put that in as a slide today. I should repeat it. No, when, when you donate money to Ordinary Life, we give it all away at the end of the year. And this year, we got to give to about 10 different um, nonprofits in Houston and around the country and one even in Africa. So it's exciting that... How you, much money did we give away? About... $25,000. Wow. So thank you. That's, yeah. that's really great to be able to. It's just awesome that you guys are so generous and that we've been able to put it towards good uses. And, and um, I had been putting pictures of behind the scenes up. I didn't do that today. But thank you, William Budge and Olivia Watson, for the work that you do in making sure that these slides go out and that we uh, stay on the air and to John Watson our um, kind of floor manager and Tim Leatherwood who is the technical guru of John is our premier counter downer yeah he gives us the tells the us fingers. when to shut up yeah <laughs> at yeah. any rate no matter who you are no matter where you are um, in your spiritual journey or where you are in this country or the world I noticed that last week the analytics said that we had people from four different four countries other than the United States cool. join us yeah so welcome. if we knew if I knew at the moment which they were we could say hello in all the languages just kidding not that multilingual but good morning <laughs> to everyone <laughs> so um I want to I want to say up front this is not a newscast today mm -mm. may sound like it in part I cannot think of a time when I have felt as compelled to say something meaningful in this class and also have felt as stymied about what to say. And I want to let you know that, and we'll, we'll get to this before we're done today, that serendipitously the 
passages in the Sermon on the Mount that we're dealing with speak directly to what's going on in our country right now. And they will next Sunday as well. And so that's why I say this is really kind of a two-parter to deal with uh, things that we are dealing with. I would like for this time to be encouraging. I'd like for it to be enlightening. I would like for it to be helpful. And I would like for it to be hopeful because right now we need these things, particularly hope and encouragement and some guidance about how to deal with what's next after insurrectionists, domestic terrorists stormed our nation's capital on January the 6th. I think January 6th will be our new 9-11. And um, horrible as it was, what's worse still was the fact that it was and sadly continues to be an inside job. Um, I was stunned by what happened, but I was not really surprised. Um, a, a, as a matter of fact, it was and is surprising to me that so many people, especially law enforcement people, claim to be surprised. Ari Culver, a writer and political consultant, wrote on December the 21st of last year, quote, on January 6th, Armed Trumpist militias will be rallying in D.C. at Trump's orders. It is highly likely that they will try to storm the Capitol after it certifies Joe Biden's win. He almost got it right. They stormed the Capitol before the vote could be counted. And thank goodness for two female interns or aides at the Capitol who had the presence of mind to take the box in which the electors' votes were stored and get them to safety before they could do damage to those. Now, if you wonder how we got here, uh, I highly encourage you to watch the documentary, The Social Dilemma. Have you seen this? I haven't, and it has been recommended to me several times. I need to watch it. I recommend it. Woefully behind on I'm, I'm recommending it. Yeah. If you wonder why um, Twitter, the Twitter account, the Facebook account of President Trump has been taken down, and it's not a violation of free speech to have done that, by the way, uh, watch this documentary. The, the subtitle of the documentary, which is at the top of the slide, says it well. The technolo technology that we think connects us actually controls us. So for the past 30 years, right-wing media personalities have cultivated and encouraged a malignant and poisonous rhetoric among a segment of particularly Republican voters. As ranks of these voters have grown, they have networked through social media to the point that an increasing number of elected officials began seeking their support. And this had the, 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 the reaction of validating the increasingly deranged views that these profit-seeking media giants want. This is what helped to elect Donald Trump. I remember four years ago, a client of mine, a very liberal Democrat lawyer, smart, smart man, said, well, we've survived this, this, something like this before. We lived through Nixon and Agnew. Let's give him a chance. Let's see what, he, what damage can he do. Hmm. What we have witnessed since the November election has been the fullest manifestation of this movement. The president, right-wing media, dozens of elected officials, aid in speaking, in spreading and validating conspiratorial lies among a large segment of the population. And if you wonder why people like Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz and others encourage the delusions of those who storm the Capitol building, it's because they know that a large percentage of Republican voters approve of what went on in Washington on Wednesday. I did not make that statistic up. I got that statistic from the website 
yougov.com, which seems to be a fairly impartial site that polls and, and tests the temperature of what's going on in the American public. The insurrectionists are the constituents of these politicians. That's why over the past four years, some of us would think after Trump would do something, well, that's it. That's the final straw. He's done for. But he never was. And um, it also does no good to say, well, Obama did the same thing. I've tried that. It doesn't work. If Obama did the same uh, thing. If Obama had done the same thing, he would have been out of office. Mm-hmm. Which brings me to another reaction about Wednesday. I was saddened, but, you know, oddly relieved. I got this idea when we did a podcast with Cindy Wigglesworth, Mm. and she was talking about what erupted, um, brought forth the George Floyd murder and what erupted after that. She said it was like lancing a boil, and the poison has to get out before there can be healing. So we've seen what happened on Wednesday. I have heard several commentators and politicians say in one way or another, well, America is better than this. This is not who we are. But take a look. This is what happened. This is who we are, at least partly. Now, I know we like to define ourselves as a country in light of our highest ideals, and I think that can be good if it gives us something to shoot for if it reflects our true aspirations and intentions, but that is not what primarily defines us at the moment. The face of our country right now is that of an angry mob of white men and a few women who, encouraged by the President of the United States, invaded the Capitol building and acted like a gang of adolescent thugs out of control. They wanted to prevent an an election from being certified. And this is what happens when people like Trump, Hawley, Cruz encourage people to believe the lie that the election was stolen from them. As I said, this didn't happen suddenly. The the picture that's on your right on the screen uh, has been circulated widely. This is one of the leaders of the movement. You can see him talking on a walkie-talkie or communication device. Mm -hmm. Just notice what it says on his Mm -hmm. t-shirt. Do you not think that if word had gotten out that there was going to be a Black Lives Matter movement staged for Washington January the 6th, that the police would not have been on alert? The Legacy Museum and National Memorial in Montgomery that Holly and Josh visited and have talked to us about, shows the underbelly of a side of America we don't want to look at but must. You know, it took Congress decades to pass a meaningful civil rights legislation. And even now, there is this huge push on the part of many people to suppress voters. America wants to hold itself up as a model of what other countries should aim for, but we don't show other countries pictures of Bull Connor turning fire hoses and turning dogs loose on protesters or John Lewis being beaten nearly to death on the bridge in Selma. Or how we are doing to this very moment actions to disenfranchise people disenfranchised people from voting. When Holly and I were talking about what we wanted to do this week, um, I I said, and I think you agreed, and you're going to comment some about this even more, that we're like a dysfunctional family where there is um, Uncle Uncle Sam. (laughs) We could call him that. (laughs) Who um, is abusing one of the children, and we either turn a blind eye to it or say, oh, he's going to get better. He's not bad. He's a good-hearted guy, you know. He's or we disbelieve the children. Oh, uh, which, children don't know what they're talking about. Yeah. I have said in here before that we are in the grips 
in this country of some really dark, dangerous shadow archetypes. And we have got to bring those archetypes out into the light because what we don't know owns us. One of these archetypes that I have talked about at length is that of white male folk religion. And that's what you saw Wednesday. Now there's another archetype which we have running deep in our culture and that is the abiding belief in redemptive violence. And as I said, we're going to amplify more on this next Sunday. The text that we'll be dealing with next week gives us a better chance to do that. You know, one of the major justifications for letting our children be shot in schools is that Americans need assault rifles in case they ever need to overthrow the government. Yes, I want us to live up to our ideals. I want a country to be proud of. The right way to do that is not to pretend that we are collectively angelic. We must acknowledge some sad, hard truths. Yes, Wednesday, Wednesday's idiotic insurrection and the politicians who support it to this moment doesn't represent the entirety of our country, but it represents enough of us to have at least for a number of hours brought the workings of our democracy to a halt. So I want to share with you a truth that you can take to the bank. It's a coin. And on one side of it, it says, dysfunctional people create a chaotic society. And on the other side of it, it says, a chaotic society creates dysfunctional people. Now, if you want comfort today, if that's what you tuned in for, you're going to get some. But it's not going to be sugar-coated Pollyanna pap. We have to come absolutely clean about what's going on, what has gone on in our country, and what is likely to be our future if we don't see, if we don't lament, mm. and if we don't repent. And all of those are really good biblical words. Mm -hmm. There's a whole chapter in the Hebrew text on lamentations, right? And yes how to grieve, how to look for wisdom and grief. Um, I'm guessing that already this talk feels rather political. And by all means, we're both responding to political events. But I think we are also speaking to a deeper moral and spiritual event. To repair the foundations of this country, of, of the human soul or human psyche, to become who we think we are is going to require our spiritual attention. We're called, I think, to attend to truth, um, to speak out against injustice, against fundamentalism and supremacy of any kind, and to create more hope. Dealing with the truth is, in my mind, a greater pathway to hope and belonging. We can't have hope and belonging if we can't tell the truth about what is. I want to recall us to about seven months ago, I said in the beginning, when we began this series on Buddha and Jesus, we more or less did these teachings separately, starting with the Eightfold Path and then the Sermon on the Mount. But they tie pretty seamlessly together in many places. And in today's, where we are in the scripture, ties exactly to right speech in, on the Eightfold Path. In his book, Inner Being, Thich Nhat Hanh writes, Aware that words can create suffering or happiness, we are committed to learning to speak truthfully and constructively using only words that inspire hope and confidence. We are determined not to say untruthful things for the sake of personal interest or to impress people, nor to utter words that might cause division or hatred. We will not spread news that we do not know to be certain, nor criticize or condemn things of which we are not sure. We will do our best to speak out about situations of injustice, even when doing so may threaten our safety. When we speak, we can create a world of love, trust, and happiness, or we can create a hell. Today matters. 
Thoughts become things, and ultimately, they create realities. It seems right now like there are two Americas. I'm trying to imagine, and we talked about this this week, what might our community be feeling this week? It is so hard not to see one another, to hug and hear voices and see the expression in our eyes. I have burned with anger this week. I've not had all the answers for my kids who are asking lots of questions. I feel like uh, as Joe Biden walked out of the room when he gave his um, quick speech, he just said, enough is enough is enough. And that's how I feel. Uh, I texted to Bill one day this week, this feels nuts. And he replied wisely, it feels nuts because it is nuts. Mm -hmm. I'm not delusional after all. So I'm taking some guesses here as to what we've collectively felt. Maybe some fear, shock, surprise, uncertainty, disgust, sadness. They're all there. So um, I talked to Matt Russell this week, mm -hmm. whom we both love yeah. and miss. And I wanted to know if Matt was preaching this Sunday, which he's not. He's out of town in uh, another city conducting a funeral. Mm. And uh, I said, well, if you were preaching, what would you talk about? And he reminded me that January the 6th was Epiphany. Mm-hmm. And that in the liturgical calendar, today is the baptism of our Lord's Sunday. Mm -hmm. This is the day that we remember our, baptiz our baptism. And every time a baby is baptized in this community of faith, we all verbally take a vow to resist Oppression to 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 oppose evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever form they ever appear. And Matt, who is such a creative theological <laughs> thinker, and he is um, he's a big fan of Rowan Williams of the mm -hmm. Church of England, and mm -hmm. he said that Rowan Williams says that baptism is really an uh, uh, evocation of God brooding over the waters of creation. Mm -hmm. And um, Matt said that we are not born into safety, that the baptism is not like the ticket for an evacuation plan for the next world. We're born into chaos and, and the world is chaotic. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's our calling to yeah. be in the chaos, but to be in the chaos with the values that represent in, the, in our tradition, it would be the Christian tradition, the values of Jesus. Biggest, biggest value, and again, we'll talk about this next Sunday, is nonviolence. Mm -hmm. um, whose voices did the protesters seek to silence on Wednesday? Largely those who have been marginalized and disenfranchised, and those who have had for years to deal with suppression and intimidation. These are the very people who came out in sufficiently large numbers to elect a new leader. And one of the things that we can celebrate in this moment is the power of women, mostly black women, yep. particularly I'm thinking of the Stacey, Stacey Abrams. Abrams. Yeah, and the, and the people who she grassroots organized and not just in Georgia, but around the country. She helped shift the, the balance of power in this country that has been on a downward spiral for the last four years. If there was ever a prophetic call for full, full inclusion at the table, Wednesday said. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure, to interpret the events. And Ilya Delio said, said something similar recently that um, God is in the mess. And it, it, I wouldn't wanna say enjoys the mess, but. But that's where the work gets done, is to enter into the mess, similar to what um, Matt said to you. But I, I've seen things like, you know, the people have spoken. And the question that's playing on my mind is, which people? On the one hand, the people elected a new president and first ever female vice president. And there were two historic elections that took place in Georgia. On the other, the people stormed a Capitol building to riot against election results that did not go their way. One woman, um, a white woman from Knoxville, Tennessee, and many of you may have seen this video, cried on a news outlet. She, her voice was 
sounded stunned and she spoke through tears to find herself pepper sprayed as she entered the Capitol threshold because, and I quote, it is a revolution. Her voice here, I'm not gonna play the video, betrays shock that she might actually have been stopped by authorities. She was not arrested for unlawful entry and cried in despair as she was led away. I'm willing to make a sizable bet that if she were not white or had a last name like Hussein or Abdullah, she would not have been escorted peacefully away. This was not a band of rogue, disorganized thugs who entered the Capitol as an afterthought. We must face that. We would like to distance ourselves from this kind of reality, but there were doctors present, teachers. I can't imagine if I was a student and I learned that my teacher had been there. How would I feel safe, especially if I was a kid, a, a, a young black kid or a young Muslim kid or a young immigrant? Um, these were CEOs. One was a CEO of a major grocery chain. Sorry. Bill needed to make a statement there. Um, <laughs> um, of a major grocery chain in Louisiana. At least one elected official was present. He was handcuffed and I think removed from office. He just got elected, West Virginia. There were six weapons found, at least a cooler full of Molotov cocktails, two pipe bombs, and a man in full tactical gear with zip ties in his hand who jumped over the rails of the Senate floor. Zip ties are otherwise used as flex cuffs to retain and detain people. This was planned. This took thought. Did you see what he said about that? I did not. This man? Uh-huh. Who he had he the say? zip ties? I picked them up. I just picked them up. I didn't even know I had them in my hand. Oh, yeah, I did see that. Yes. Mm-hmm. So this kind of preparation isn't spontaneous. They wanted prisoners. America is deeply wounded. If we think of a country like a body, and we think of it like the way trauma gets stored in the body, the body holds this stuff. So America as a body is storing unhealed trauma and it's acting from wounds instead of from the healed places. Our history, I was listening to Eddie Glaude's book, Begin Again. He did, um, spent probably a couple years with James Baldwin, reading James Baldwin, and he has written a book called Begin Again on his thoughts of why Baldwin is still so relevant today. Eddie Glaude is a professor and CNN commentator. He says, our history has a stranglehold on us. And we cannot afford to play innocent to that history because it influences our present. So many of us want to say, well, these things are in the past. But if we cannot see how the history influences our present, we cannot move forward. I was telling you earlier, Josh sent us both this video. I haven't of, seen it yet. Well, it, when you see it, you'll see um, I mean, there is so much statement around this is not who we are. And yet in the rotunda, of the Capitol are several paintings of colonists with arms attacking Native Americans. This is who we are, and we have to deal with that fact. The, um, I'm blocking on his name, the, the black um, preacher who was elected in Georgia. Oh, my God, no, I am. Ossoff is the guy who was just like it, and I'm going to quote him later. Okay, all right. right. Warnock, thank you, Reverend Warnock. Why We just totally went, had a, we both had an elder moment. Yeah. In the same moment. Um, Warnock, Reverend Warnock. Yeah. There was a video of him yesterday on TV leading a prayer meeting in the Capitol. Did you see that? I didn't see that. This is from months ago. Mm Mm-hmm. He and some of his constituents were kneeling on the floor in the rotunda mm-hmm. praying. Mm-hmm. And he, they were surrounded by cops. And eventually a cop went and got him and handcuffed him and led him away from the prayer meeting. For praying? Well, you have to figure out what that's for, mm-hmm. for being a black person mm-hmm. praying there. Mm-hmm. What that was about. Mm-hmm. I have been feebly trying to clean up my study. And uh, my beautiful bride would say it's a very feeble effort. 
I lost them the other day, and, and I said, I can't find so-and-so. And she said, I don't see how you find anything on your desk. It's so chaotic. But last week, after uh, teaching here, um, went home and I found this book by W.D. Davis. W.D. Davis is a British biblical scholar. This is a book I had in seminary. This book was um, based on material that he gave in 1964. Uh, and, and for those of you who are not fast or good at math like me, uh, that was 64 years ago, long before Robert Funk founded the Jesus Seminar. And next week, longer than that, <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to say I'm going to keep I'm going to try to stop saying the phrase next week. Next week, uh, I'm going to go more into what W.D. Davis has to say about the Sermon on the Mount. This book is so old, the pages are falling out of it. You know, that, that kind of book. Mm -hmm. uh, but I thought, since I had some time on my hand last Monday, I would just take it with me and I would read it while I was waiting for things. I just thought it was so ironic that the passage that we are up to for today... Um, so fits today. Now remember, we got ourselves on this path long before we knew what was coming down the pike. Nobody, um, I think people didn't know what was happening. We just ignored it. But this is the text in the Sermon on the Mount we're up to for today. Okay? Um, got it. it. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and don't say anything, this is Eugene Peterson's translation, and don't say anything you don't mean. This council is embedded deep in our tradition. You only make things worse when you lay down a smoke screen of pious talk saying, I'll pray for you and never doing it, or saying, God be with you and not meaning it. You don't make your words true by embellishing them with religious lace. In making your speech sound more religious, it becomes less true. Just say yes and no. When you manipulate words to get your own way, you go wrong. Mm. So one of the theological issues that has been brought to the surface by the events of January 6th is truth-telling. Over the past four years, our president has told one lie after another and has been emboldened to do so by both ardent and paid supporters. Right after his inauguration, when he bragged about the size of the crowd, one reporter on national news showed photographs comparing that inauguration size with the one four years previous. And when one spokesman po pointed out the difference between those two, she said, well, we have alternative facts. Sean Spicer angrily said to reporters, that was the biggest inauguration crowd for any president in the history of America ever. And it didn't get challenged. So over the past four years, many people, including religious leaders, have dismissed the president, record-winning, record-lying, by saying something, well, like, yeah, all, all politicians lie. Just last week, Trump called Georgia's Republican Secretary of State in a call that itself was full of one lie after another. You can go online and read it. And said, I just want to find 11,780 votes. And Brad Raffensperger said in response, Mr. President, the challenge that you have is that you have the wrong data. The next day, the state's key election official said, we believe truth matters. So does truth matter to people of faith? I'm going to lift some words from the Reclaiming Jesus document, which you can find in its entirety on the Ordinary Life website. This document was endorsed by a wide variety of religious leaders, a very diverse group ethnically and gender-wise, uh, leaderships from all walks of the 
Christian faith in the United States. This, uh, and I'm quoting, but I'm going to leave a few things out. We believe that truth is morally central to our personal and public lives. Truth-telling is central to the prophetic biblical tradition whose vocation includes speaking the word of God into their societies and speaking truth to power. A commitment to speaking truth is foundational to shared truth in society. Falsehood can enslave us, but Jesus promises you will know the truth and truth will set you free. The search and respect for truth is crucial to anyone who follows Christ. When public lying becomes so persistent that it deliberately tries to change facts for ideological, political, or personal gain, the public accountability to truth is undermined. The regular purveying of falsehoods and consistent lying by the nation's highest leaders can change the moral expectation within a culture. The normalization of lying presents a profound moral danger to the fabric of society. So when a president continually lies and then calls for action based on his followers' belief in those lies, we have entered not just a tragic time, but a dangerous time. The choice for someone who is a follower of Jesus is clear. We must choose theological integrity over the idolatry of white male folk religion. I remember after the election in 2016, uh, <clears throat> Richard Rohr, whom most of you know of and I think respect, said that the endorsement of Trump by white evangelical Christians will be something that they will not be able to overcome for a generation. It's the stupor that we can't afford to get lulled into to normalize this kind of thing. It, it, it definitely, there is a normalcy to it in our history but we cannot accept it as okay. So I think that that's the sort of resistance that we have to sort of shake away in our own bodies is however normal the behaviors of lying, um, the events of this last week seem, we can't rest in this sort of feeling that, that, it's, that means it's okay. When noting the police presence at the Capitol ahead of conferring the electoral count, even in lieu of those who openly discounted and dismissed the elections of those who refused to accept what the numbers showed us, many commentators noticed how different this was from the police presence during the Black Lives Matter movement from the summer. Even though the storming of the Capitol was directly incited hours before and fomented for months, on your right is the riot of last week, on the left is the police presence at the Black Lives Matter protests this summer. Words matter because words lead to actions. I also want to draw a distinction between a riot and a protest. I've seen those two interchanged a lot this week. These words matter too. A protest is a usually organized public demonstration of disapproval of some law, policy, idea, or state of affairs. While a riot is a disturbance of the peace, created by an assemblage of usually three or more people acting with a common purpose and in a violent and tumultuous manner to the terror of the public. Words matter, and it's important not to overlay these two. This was not a protest. It was a riot. I'm not trying to incite fear here. I am trying to speak to facts. Um, this is the kind of stuff we watch on international television and say, whoa, thank God that's not my country, and we turn the TV off. Some people right now are feverish in their desire to hold on to an identity and a system that favors them and resists change, and they will hold on even if violence is the cost. To many of us, I'm guessing this kind of violent behavior feels foreign. Others are hungry for change and hoping for a future that includes more people, more livelihoods, more healing. 
even if this process is messy and uncertain. I still love that idea that that's where God is, in the chaos, in the uncertainty, and in that sort of messy middle. Still there are some who remain passive or indifferent. And you know, but Baldwin and King spoke directly to that indifference in saying we can't afford indifference. We have to sort of be shaken awake in some way. Maybe those who are indifferent are unwilling to look at what is being revealed telling ourselves it can't possibly be this bad because it's painful. I've read many responses of shock and surprise, but I've also read many responses along the lines of we reap what we sow. It's a shock to the system for sure when what we perceive to be real and functional and worth believing in is revealed to be fragile, if not broken. White supremacy or the identity politics of fear have been on full display this last week. But really, that is the backbone of our society. Many folks, many good folks, can't even say Black Lives Matter without feeling sort of squeamish or uncomfortable because they think it is too political. To me, it's no more political than saying, you matter, or trans lives matter. It's just true. People matter. We need to speak these words to remind us of who has been left out and cast aside we need to repeat them like a mantra until we accept them as true. We need to speak the truth about the legacy we have wrought and inherited and how we ended up here because of the violence of white supremacy. And it is necessary to grieve it. And without really feeling that grief about a democracy we believe to be true versus what is true, we cannot imagine better worlds. Our collective body is wounded and we are badly bleeding. Now that we see, what will we say? What impact can healing words have? If untrue words have the impact of violence and sedition, what impact can we speak into being with healing words? I want to believe that words of lamentation, grief and compassion can be more impactful than words of division, hate and insurgence but I don't know. We are so vulnerable as a species, so vulnerable to collective think. Our words matter because they propel us into action. This is exactly the sequence that led to Wednesday, January 6. I'm trying to imagine the thoughts that came before the things in Trump's mind. Maybe the thought was, I don't want to believe I lost. For sure he's openly said, I don't believe I lost. So the words to a largely white crowd were, and this is a direct quote preceding what took place, I totally disagree with the outcome of the election and the facts bear me out. We're gonna walk down to the Capitol, we're gonna cheer on our brave senators and congressmen and women, and we're probably not gonna be cheering so much for some of them because you'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength and you have to be strong. The actions that followed were storming the Capitol to fight for this perception of strength and taking back your country. Later, they were told via video that was later taken down, we love you, you're very special, but you have to go home now. Nothing happens in a vacuum. The events of the past week have been stoked and stoked again over years and years. All systems, families, companies, countries, have patterns of behavior and pathology. Bill can speak to this so much more eloquently than I can. But pathology can only be changed if it's dealt with honestly and directly. In other words, it doesn't continue to influence the next generation when we can bring it to the surface. You know how in AA, the first step to recovery is admittance. I would say if I were in an AA meeting, my name is Holly and I am an alcoholic. Our country needs to say, my name is America and we have a problem. The kind of unchecked violence at the hands of mostly white folks toward the livelihood and progress of non-white folks is a pattern of behavior in our country. And as painful as that is, if we don't see it and grieve it, we can't work to change it. Ben and Jerry, these affable guys who gave us some of the most creative and flavorful ice creams are also speakers of truth. I think one of my favorite um, flavors is everything but the, and it's supposed to be everything but the kitchen sink. It's, it was, anyway, they, they have some amazing flavors. 
But they issued a, a series of tweets. So this would be, you know, the equivalent of a, of a corporate response to what happened. And they tweeted, this is eight, eight, eight different screens. Yesterday was not a protest. It was a riot to uphold white supremacy. It was allowed to happen. The mostly white insurrectionists roamed freely and without consequence through the heart of our democracy. The only explanation is that this was allowed to happen because they were white, not black, brown, or indigenous. The white mob that made its way to the dais of the U.S. House of Representatives and the Senate, literally sitting in the chair of the vice president had been in minutes before, is the ultimate embodiment of white privilege. We saw two Americas yesterday. In one America, we saw record voter turnout driven by black voters that resulted in the election of the first black and first Jewish senators from the state of Georgia. This is Warnock and Ossoff. Our democracy at its best. In the second America, we saw a mostly white mob encouraged by the president violently invade the seat of our democracy in an attempt to overturn a free and fair election. It was a failed coup, our democracy in peril. Both of these Americas are us. Black and brown people have long understood and exposed to white tyranny that was on full display at yesterday's riot since the founding of our nation. It's the double standard that undergirds white supremacy in our nation. Both of these Americas are us. How we respond to the events of yesterday will determine which America we will be. And then they call for the resignation or impeachment. There is both hope and despair in these words. What I want to say is this. It is terrible and ugly what happened at the Capitol. But as Bill said earlier, it's not necessarily surprising. If we've been listening and watching, it's exactly what's been called into being by a country who has never dealt properly with division. Division that has been thrown again into sharp relief over the last few years. Thoughts become words that become actions, and these actions should not be compared to the largely peaceful worldwide protests this summer insisting that Black Lives Matter. They should be compared to acts of brutality, for example, inflicted upon nonviolent marchers who crossed the Edwin Pettus Bridge from Selma to Montgomery. They should be compared to the spitting and threatening and pushing inflicted upon black students who were the first to attend white schools after Brown v. Board of Education in 1954. The acts of last week are resistance to a kind of change that this country says it needs and wants. There was a noose hung on the west side of the Capitol, for God's sake. This alone is a symbol of terror. This is not arbitrary. Rioters scaled the walls and attempted to replace American flags with Trump and Confederate flags. Again, we're in denial if we can't honestly say what these flags represent. We watched a rash of cabinet members resign later that night, either to protect self-interest or because they got a glimmer of conscience. Who knows? But it reminds me, and this is an epic conversation in my household, did Darth Vader really return to the light at the end of his life? It reminds me of that moment. How Darth Vader, the Sith Lord, and also Luke Skywalker's father in the epic Star Wars series, sacrificed himself for Luke to save the galaxy. Now, Darth Vader led a life of violence and power hunger and uh, overtaking other galaxies. But at the very last minute, he saw the light. It could have been genuine. It could have been a real change of heart that these folks decided to quit. My son would say, Mommy, you can't become a force ghost if, you can't, if it's not a real transformation. <laughs> we'll see. But this sudden change of heart also feels a bit performative and hard to believe. Our wounds will not be healed by spontaneous perfunctory acts or apologies, but by intentional attention to a spiritual awakening. I've heard a lot of this is not who America is this week. And in the spirit of right speech and saying what you mean, it is part of who we are. It is important to acknowledge that we are both triumph and struggle, warriors for justice and injustice, and honestly deal with these truths. Denial doesn't facilitate our healing. 
just as only focusing on the negative does not facilitate hope. Somehow, this section of Reverend Warnock's acceptance speech in Georgia paints this picture of a complex America, of one that is both harmful and resilient and full of hope and struggle. He said, I come before you tonight as a proud American and as a son of Georgia. My roots are planted deeply in Georgia soil. A child who grew up in the Caton Homes housing project of Savannah, Georgia, number 11 out of 12 children. Mm. A proud graduate of Morehouse College and the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church, the spiritual home of Martin Luther King Jr. and Congressman John Lewis. A son of my late father who was a pastor, a veteran, a small businessman, and my mother who was a teenager growing up in Waycross, Georgia, who used to pick somebody else's cotton. But the other day, because this is America, the 82-year-old hands that used to pick somebody else's cotton went to the polls and picked her youngest son to be a United States senator. To end his speech, Warnock returned to his family, recalling how his father, who died in 2010, used to wake him up every morning at dawn. It was still dark, he said. It's dark right now, but morning comes. And scripture tells us weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Let us rise up, greet the morning, and meet the challenges of this moment. It is dark right now, but light comes in the morning. We are in between darkness and light, able to look around and see both at once. How we choose to think about this moment will impact who we will become. There are definitely two Americas, a dark one and a light-filled one. We must face this or we cannot heal. It's not a matter of having better Democrats or nicer Republicans. It's a matter of recognizing and speaking to the reality of unhealed white supremacy in this country. If we are to heal it, there are three pillars which Martin Luther King spoke to directly. Number one was urgency. We cannot wait for gradualism. We cannot turn away from what is being revealed. Number two is patience and commitment. Our wounds need immediate attention, but change is also slow and difficult. And number three is a commitment to nonviolence and interdependence. We are, as MLK said, wrapped in a single garment of destiny. We never walk alone. You'll notice, I think, that it's a struggle. It feels to me like a struggle to speak wisdom into all that has happened, to all that's been building over these last months and years. But I wonder if it isn't exactly where we belong, which is what you sort of called attention to at the beginning, is in the struggle, in the in-between. Okay with not knowing the outcome, but also okay with committing ourselves to the process of healing and able to wrestle with the complex contradictions that define us. I feel angry that Jesus has been used to amplify these rioters. Jesus would not have been among them. He was seditious in other ways. He definitely spoke truth to power and definitely went against the state who was an oppressive state. But he was right there with those who had been left out. He also would not have been just handing out blankets and water while Rome burned. He would have said, get right with your inner lives, y'all. Mean what you say. Speak truth to power. Attend to injustice. Because your words matter. You know, Holly, um, listening to you, uh, so many responses to what you so beautifully and eloquently have said. Um, One, the Star Wars. We, we We have to embrace a myth and live it. And I'm thinking about Joanna Macy saying mm-hmm. that there, there are three stories that are going on in our culture. And it's not that one of them is true and one of them isn't, but certainly one of them is wiser mm-hmm. and, and more useful. And this, the stories are business as usual, the great unraveling mm-hmm. and the great turning. Yep. And you pick which one you want to live. For sure. 
And, and I was also thinking, um, going back to your use of the Thich Nhat Hanh thing, when people want to know, okay, what do we do? How do we get out of this? Well, go back and look at the Four Noble Truths. Mm -hmm. um, Kathleen Singh has a book on the Four Noble Truths called Unbinding. It's not an easy read, but it's um, full of instruction about inter interdependent mm -hmm. arising. This is this way because that's that way. Right. And, and the thing about interdependence is not that it's something we achieve, it's something that already is. But the conscious part of it is whether we live into it or not and how we live into it. How do we abide by interdependence? You know, we, we are, has styled this whole thing for the last two years, two, two and a half years now, as living be between the no longer and the not yet. And that phrase comes directly from the field of evolutionary cosmology. We're in a new world. It's a new ball game. And one of the things that has fueled the fundamentalism, particularly Christian fundamentalism, is fear of evolution. Mm -hmm. But we are evolving. I thought this week, this week was the birthday of Stephen Hawking. And Stephen Hawking, I had run across something he said years ago that I had remembered. He said, for millions of years, mankind lived just like the animals. Mm -hmm. Then something happened, which unleashed the power of our imagination. We learned to talk and we learned to listen. One of the things that I'm going to say tomorrow night in the talk that I'm doing for the Jung Center is that Carl Jung, in a time not unlike our own, when the world was very perilous, dealing with being on the brink of the nuclear age, having the capacity to destroy the world many times over, Jung was asked, will we make it? Mm -hmm. And um, he said, if enough of us does his or her own work, he did his own work. I cleaned it up. Oh, my gosh. He didn't what? know about sexist language. Oh, I got it, got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the, uh, Jung did do his own work. Yeah, you know, he, he did do it. He spent three years really outside of the fray. That's where the Red Book came from, right? The, his diving into the dreams and the and the unconsciousness of his behavior. I have a colleague whose wife gave him the Red Book for Christmas. Oh, it's gorgeous. And I said, did you read it? And he said, I didn't have a chance to, my dog ate it. <laughs> my do I used to have a dog who used to eat all of my favorite books. He loved the glue on the binding. So I want to be clear, this statement by Jung's doesn't mean that it's Joe Biden's responsibility to fix our country. It's not the Democratic majority now that people are breathing a sigh of relief over. Not their job to do it. It's my job. It's your job. It's our job together. And going forward, we'll, not today, but going forward, we'll offer some suggestions about how do you talk to somebody who's so far on the other side of the issue? How do you deal with a neighbor? So what next Sunday's lesson is about. It's up to us to hold tight to the values that, not as we aspire to in this country, but the, the values that are given to us by Buddha and by Jesus and, and, and by all the living, living traditions. Um, we're healed by embracing those and living them out. This will not always be comfortable. It will not be without pain. But if we do it with integrity and love, we can move more and more in the direction of the empowered and empowering community Jesus calls us into. So here, here we are, 10 days into the beginning of a new year. I know it's arbitrary. It really doesn't make any difference. Just like boundaries don't really define countries, <laughs> but we don't greet it indifferently. It does make a difference. And so at the beginning of the year and in um, another 10 days, the beginning of a new presidential administration, let's look at our intentions. What do we intend to bring forth? I have this daily practice, which I encourage you to, 
have. I nag you about it. Take it up. Pray, contemplate, read, do, head, heart, hands. I would add to your list, grieve. 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 Hope. Part of the daily practice is I read every single day. Um, And when I have trouble going to sleep at night or wake in the middle of the night, I recite this. It's Mm -hmm. easy enough to memorize. It is a prayer attributed to Francis of Assisi, but Francis actually didn't write it. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, let me sow pardon. Where there is doubt, let me sow faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. Grant, O divine master, that I might not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to be understanding, to be loved as to be loving. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in self-forgetting that one finds, and it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. If a growing number of us live this prayer, we can do the work of repairing and healing. We got our work cut out for us. Got our work cut out for us. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being here. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this. You carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and we will see you here next Sunday.